Today's book shows why businesses, marketers, and entrepreneurs need to break free from their mainstream inhibition and turn their attention to the margins to confront, evaluate, and embrace the strangeness of behaviors, ideas, and ways of life at the fringes. Using original research and analysis of the brands that have successfully backed marginal behaviors, our guest today provides a framework for understanding and evaluating this non-obvious, untapped potential. Marginal behaviors may be unpromising, untesting, weird, and sometimes even repulsive, yet they can point the way to the future. Today's margins are tomorrow's pot of gold, if you know where to look. We welcome the author of From Marginal to Mainstream, Why Tomorrow's Brand Growth Will Come from the Fringes and How to Get There First. Helen Edwards, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. And it feels like a very good fit for the innovation show, I think. So really happy to be here. It's a brilliant fit. And even when I was reading out about those marginal behaviors that may be weird, a lot of our audience kind of going, they're talking about me. <laughs> so our, our audience live in the margins. So it's an absolutely brilliant fit. I highly, highly recommend the book to our audience. I really see a beautiful fit between innovation and innovation academia, innovation literature, and all the research we've covered on this show. And Helen brings a beautiful mix of the marketing world into that research. And it, it just works so really well together. I have three copies up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation show Substack, and you will be in the hat to win that and paid subscribers, you have three times the chance to win that book ones behind me there on the shelf behind me up for grabs as well. Brilliant, brilliant book. Helen, let's begin with the definition of the margins. Many of our audience live there, as I mentioned, are close to the margins or are marginal thinkers, at least bringing insights back from the margins to the mainstream and often get rejected. So I'd love you to describe what marginal behavior is. So we obviously we had to de define, and I say we, because although my name is on the book, there's a whole research team that helped me with it. This was a team effort. I didn't do it on my own. But what we, we knew we were going to have to really be clear on a definition of what a marginal behavior is and what it's not. And, you know, so we started with the percentages. So we kind of said a marginal behavior has to be less than 3% of the population doing it. Then it might come to minority, which is 3 to 12, mainstream 12 plus. But what's important is what the it is. And what we were looking for with marginal behaviors is behavior choices that are about life first and foremost. So this is not a consumption choice, first and foremost. So often with trends, and I've sat in millions of trends presentations at the end of a year, and it's always quite a nice thing to do, but you're never really quite sure what to do with a trend. You know, often trends can be either about a lifestyle, you know, an aging population, or a trend could be, we really think orange is going to be big next year. It can be about, it's mostly about consumption first. Whereas with marginal behaviours, we were out behaviour and people first. So it's about how are people choosing to live their lives in a way that there's only less than 3% of them doing it, where consumption might be part of it, but it's not driven by consumption. It's driven by a choice of, I would like to live like this. I would like this to be part of my life. And the other important thing is that we were very careful that it shouldn't be uh, driven or... Uh, be a primary motivator shouldn't be due to religion or politics. 
So we kind of took that out because some things, the way people choose to live might might be because of their religion or because of their politics. This was more about I want to live like this. I want to have this in my life. And yeah, it may be that there's some consumption around it, but primarily it's because I want to live like this. There may be no consumption around it. One of the things you talk about is so useful for many of our audience. We have mavericks in the audience, change makers who also work in marketing. And one of the big difficulties they have, you call out very, very clearly, which is you go to this big meeting, the whole organization's involved, you have a trends meeting, you maybe have a brainstorm meeting and somebody shouts out, hey, let's do a DTC, a directed to consumer product. And you're kind of going, well, it's kind of just the same thing. And in innovation parlance, we just call that sustaining or incremental innovation. It's just stretching out exactly what you have done, putting lipstick on the pig and calling it something differently. So I'd love you to describe this problem that is so prevalent. I think, I mean, I think in many ways, I mean, as you just described, I know why organizations do that. I know why uh, marketers do it because there's less risk attached. So if you're working for, I don't know, say a big beauty company or hair care company and your immediate and, you, and your job is is innovation and growth, I know why the very first thing most marketers do or most even business people do is go, what's L'Oreal doing? You know, hey, maybe we should have a curly hair range, which is quite a big thing at the moment. Maybe we should have a curly hair range. Uh, let's do that. Or maybe I'll tell you what, Let's um, create something that's a micellar water for hair. You know, they tend to sort of grab what's going on at the moment or, or even worse, is there a different sort of pump that we could put on the packaging? And as you say, all of that is what, what I would call core and extended core. You're just kind of sweating what you've already got and you're looking to your category for inspiration. But the net result of that, as you know, is you're just fighting for these sort of little share gains here and there. You knock L'Oreal off for a bit or Weller off for a bit or whatever. But actually, no one's pushing through with something really different. So, but I know why they do it. I know why they do it. It's because there's less risk attached. Um, it's faster, usually, because if you're going for something that's really breakthrough, usually most shareholder-driven organisations need, you know, a proof of concept and lots of research, but but the but the rewards will be much greater. And because the tenure of most marketing people is like 18 months, two years, they want to go, hey, look what I did last year. And so that's what happens. And so you end up in this sort of spiral of everyone doing the same thing, which is not really what we're there for in marketing, I think. I love what you talk about. And this is the real purpose of your work is that you, if you were a different thinker as a marketer, or, or even not, you might be just badly educated in this field. You may think that actually incremental is the way, and maybe you get rewarded for just incremental eking out 1% each year, if even, or going into different territories, or as we said, incrementally marketing, changing the packaging or something like that. But you want people to go from the, the diffusion of innovations curve, if you think of it that way, from the end, the laggard, to be the forerunner. And with this, you give us a whole new parlance that we're going to discover today. We're also doing two parts. This book is so deep, and two parts won't even do it justice. But today, we're going to talk about the challenges and some of the parlance that Helen introduces. 
I thought one of the ways we do that is the really great example you give at the start about the diffusion of veganism into mainstream from the margins. So perhaps you'll take us through that. And then what we'll do is we'll map some of the beacons, which are these ways of understanding what's coming that you introduce us to, to the veganism story. So maybe an overview of veganism would be a great way to start. Yeah, veganism is probably the thing, along with weirdly tattoos, <laughs> that made me interested in this area because they're both examples of a behaviour choice that have been around a very long time, but they, they've they sort of stayed marginal for quite a long time and then they took off. And then there are other behaviours like homeopathy, for example, that's also been around a long time and it's never taken off. And so what we wanted to do was to understand what makes something take off and, and why might it not. And we ended up the lens of veganism was a really good one to look at because a lot of it's very current. You know, veganism started really in the Western world in uh, post-war. Uh, and there was one man who was a uh, a non-dairy a non vegetarian. So they didn't even have a name at that time called Donald Watson. And he wanted to start a movement because of their dietary lifestyle choice. And they called it vegan, apparently, because it's the beginning and end of vegetarian. I mean, maybe, you know, but uh, and he convened a meeting and he wanted to start a, a movement in about 1944. And off they went. They got going. Now, the reason for their dietary choice, the reason they were vegans was animal welfare. They just felt that it was completely wrong that we should be eating other animals. And it was all about animal welfare. Now, nothing really happened with veganism for about 60 years it stayed in the margins. It took off in about 2017. And I think as we'll unpack, as we sort of go through some of the, um, the, the beacons is, you know, the first beacon I talk about, for example, is intensity, which is you need a small group of intense activists or people who really believe in this behavior to get any sort of traction at all. So, you know, Watson and his followers who met every week, who published their newsletter, really intensely believed that their dietary choice was the right way forward and they wanted everyone to join in in them. And But if they hadn't had that intensity of belief, it would have just sort of petered away and gone away because it's too hard. Because in those early days, when you're adopting a behaviour like veganism or no soaping or, you know, I don't know, um, being a new nomad, it's always harder to be that person because usually it costs more money. It's socially unacceptable. Uh, and people are questioning your choices all the time. So, you know, when we did our research, we talked to some people who'd been vegans for over 10 years. We wanted to understand that experience. And they said, you know, being a vegan 10 years ago was really socially unacceptable. It was very difficult to go out and eat. You were always given a sort of some sort of nut thing. And, you know, you would ask people, you, people would say, oh, you know, would you like to come for supper? And you go, I'd love to come for supper. I'm a vegan. Oh, mm. You know, you know, invitations would be withdrawn. But now, of course, it's not. We're all a vegan, aren't we? Some of the time. But, you know, for beacon number one, which is what we, we, I was talking about, you need that intensity from those people. And of course, you always get resistance. And the thing about uh, veganism is people resisted veganism in those very early days for the same reason that Watson was a vegan, which is that they thought they had to eat meat in order to stay alive, frankly. So that's really interesting. And and then, of course, culture and people start to shift. So as you become and basically it stayed like that for about 60 years. But what happened in the 2000s was a whole combination of factors, I think. New research on what makes us healthy 
I think. New awareness of how we treat animals and animal welfare, sustainability. Uh, so we understand more about our health. Um, then you've got certain subcultures being vegan, like punks. So you've got a whole confluence of factors, which we then turned into beacons because they, we think these things give you sort of a, a way of looking at behaviour now that then act together. And then you get clever entrepreneurs and clever businesses going, hey, let's not call it vegan because that's really off-putting. Let's call it plant-based. You get people reframing and diluting and then you get mainstream acceptance. So so veganism, I mean, that's a whistle-stop tour through veganism. But when you look at veganism through the lens of the beacons, which I think we will, it's a fantastic story. And I think what it tells us is if I can, if I take a behaviour like, I don't know, microdosing, not, that's not a brilliant one because that's illegal in this country. I don't think it'd be illegal forever. But let's take um, uniform wardrobes. So it's wearing a similar thing most of the time or polyphasic sleeping, sleeping in different time periods. You know, and I look at it through the lens of the beacons. It begins to give you an insight into what you could do in one of those behaviours to bring it more into the mainstream. I love this. Like so many of our audience live there. And, and I mean myself included i was one of these nerds who in in my teens started you know getting into drum and bass music remember that and all that type of music and then once it became mainstream it was like it lost its appeal and kind of moved on to different types of music and I, and i realized that that is a pattern that follows through every phase of my life so keto dieting uh, at the moment i'm so focused on the whole idea of longevity there's a summit here actually in ireland in august the longevity summit that i'm speaking at and it includes people like David Sinclair. But the reason I mentioned that all is if you think about that, as you, the audience, some of you do this, you're practicing, you're dabbling. But as Helen says, in that phase one, which is intensity, it's expensive, it's inconvenient. You know, you're the person at the big ball who kind of goes, have you got your vegetarian option? And they give you the same old, <laughs> the same old quiche that they always roll out the whole time out of the freezer. And I, I wanted to show veganism maybe through the steps the eight beacons and i found this alone if if only you buy the book and you read chapter one it's so useful to understand the language because you go from this point one of intensity to point two which is resistance and i'd love you to take us through resistance and i'm going to show on the screen here the eight beacons as well so people can get an overview of those beacons yeah, so what the beacons are is really the output of all of the research we did, which is when we started to do the research, the big intention was, is there a way you can read these behaviours better? So you can be somebody who's about veganism and not homeopathy. So you know where to go. And the beacons were the signs, signals, clues and motifs that give you a lens through which you can view a behaviour to give you a clue as to whether it could become mainstream or what you should do. Because some of it is what you do, some of it is understanding the behaviour. So I've talked about intensity. You need intensity. You need those intense few. If you haven't got it, it's going nowhere. Now, resistance is an interesting one because you will always have resistance in a marginal behaviour. Otherwise, it wouldn't be marginal, would it? But, but one of the interesting things we discovered is that resistance itself is nuanced. 
It's not just a no thank you. And you need to know what type of resistance you've got. So we discovered that resistance is on a spectrum from resistance because I think it might kill me. So there are some people, and that's where veganism started. It was like, well, if I don't eat meat, I'm going to die, you know. Um, And some people feel that about microdosing. They feel that it's mind altering drugs. It's downright dangerous. You shouldn't do it. So you get resistance. It's dangerous through various sort of shades of weirdness. So there's it's dangerous. Look, that is really weird. But, you know, so urophagia, for example, that's drinking your own urine. There are some people that passionately believe in it. Nobody thinks it's going to kill them, but it's really weird and somewhat disgusting. Then you get various shades of weirdness to, well, it's a bit weird, but, you know, classic current phrase, you do you. And then you get sort of through to that's kind of idealistic, being a new nomad. Wow. Get you. That's great. You go do. And then and then you get a resistance, which is, do you know what? I'm kind of interested in that, but I don't know how I would sort of fit it into my lifestyle. And, you know, a good example of that is also microdosing, actually. So a lot of people very interested in microdosing, but it's illegal in this country. So you're not going to be able to do it that easily. But I think there are things that you can learn about microdosing, about why people want to do it, that give you inspiration for other ways to innovate. So it's, I know I'm going slightly off subject. It's not always about coming straight down the line at a behaviour. So if you take microdosing, loads of people really interested in it. So that's taking tiny amounts, one-tenth of a trip dose of psilocybin, magic mushrooms. Um, loads of people really interested in it. Not not practical because not legal. But what are they looking at here? What What people are searching for are a little lift that they're in control of, that's kind of natural, that doesn't have all the binge connotations of heavy drinking, that doesn't have the health connotations of smoking and sort of, you know, uh, smoking cannabis and all of that, all of those associations of like, oh, it's just a bit grubby and horrible. They, what they love about microdosing is it's clean, it's natural, it's small, and you still, and you're in control and you get a little lift. Now, you don't necessarily need to be a magic mushroom manufacturer to do that. You could be, for example, a brandy maker and think, well, hang on a minute, that's what we do. But maybe we could rethink about how we position ourselves. So it's not always. So so you really need to understand your resistance, which is beacon number two. It's not just about going, oh, people don't like it. Sure, people, of course, people don't like it. It's marginal. But know why people don't like it. Because the more you are to the impractical end, the more potential you've got. When people think it's, most people think it's downright dangerous. It's not the end of the world, but it's harder. So know your resistance was beacon number two. I'm going to try and bring it back to our audience to think about organizational resistance, but I don't want to take away the message from the book. And I love your examples. The book is peppered with great examples from everything like Cricket Nutella, uh, Cricket <laughs> Nutella, which I was telling my son about today, and he was like, kind of gone, Ugh, and I was like, oh no, 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 there's more protein per pound <laughs> in a cricket than there is in a cow, and less waste, and also the life cycle is much quicker. And he's like, oh, oh, that's interesting. And I think the reason I'm saying that is, if you can find alignment, then you can actually move from the resistance point first. This is why education. This is why really I do this show, Helen is is education bring to the fore information that isn't mainstream and should be because people can then make more informed decisions and 
in organizations, we see that there's a resistance about, oh, this is going to kill us. It might change where I work or how I work and all the skills I need. And then when an organization brings in a common vision and they try to align the vision of the future with the, where the organization today, they have a path forward. And the exact thing, same thing goes in the context that you speak about is that misalignment. If you can get around that, you can forge a path forward. Yeah, so, so misalignment is, it, we've seen it in a couple of the behaviours, but I'll talk about it through the lens of veganism. And I talked about it a bit earlier, which is the reason that Watson and his lot felt that we should all be vegans is because of animal welfare. It's cruel to kill and eat animals is what they thought. But what the, the reason to resist it, to not be a vegan, was I need animal products because otherwise I might die. And so that's how the argument went. It's cruel to animals. No, 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 I need animals. That's how the argument went. That, but actually, if you can then change, cr crack open that and say, actually, you know, let's get off the animal argument and say, you can get a really great protein from soya or plant are more sustainable, or it's better for your heart health, you're then having a different conversation. And it's not the traditional, eat meat, it's cruel to animals. Sorry, don't eat meat, it's cruel to animals. Eat meat, I need animal protein. So you sort of need to go, what, why are you resisting? And can we have a different conversation about this, basically? And misalignment is often right there. But the intensity, the people who intensity, intensely want to do something often can't see that the reason that they're saying to people do this is off-putting, but there is another reason that could be, could crack it open. And, and understanding that, and this is what I find so useful in the way you introduce all these concepts is understanding the resistance is absolutely educating yourself to how to overcome it and then create that alignment that's so, so important. One of the things that we found on that, and, and I'm sure many of your listeners will know this, is getting into a negative space in traditional consumer research is not something that we do or are comfortable with. So if ever you've done like product or innovation research and you go, hey, do you like this new thing we've created? And consumers just go, oh, nah. You, you move on, you don't want negativity in consumer. You go, oh, okay, that's fine. We'll put it over there. What about this? You know, and but whereas what we did is when we put something up, like say, um, you know, insect protein and consumers went, oh, disgusting. We went, well, talk to me a bit about you, how you're feeling disgusting. What is it that's, is it disgusting for you or is it disgusting for others? What's the, why is it disgusting? Is it you think you're going to be sick? We dug in to the negativity and we never, ever, ever do that as marketers. But you have to, if you want to understand that resistance, which is what you were saying. You've dealt with the uh, misalignment, you've created alignment, but there's also and this is why I mentioned that longevity conference. I met the creator of that conference, a guy called Martin O'Dee here in Dublin. And he was telling me that there were some opportunistic elements that came along the way, you know, um, celebrity endorsements or some type of, uh, you know, for example, an athlete, an athlete might be interested in cold showers or keto dieting or something like that. And that might help raise all boats as a result of that, because you have this type of influencer. But also you talk about, well, this can happen with different tribes and different tribes of 
society can actually bring behaviors with them. And then you just accept that as, oh, well, that's part of what our tribe does. And this happened with veganism as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, one of the things we found when we looked at veganism is that being a vegan was part of being a punk and part of being a, ha a hippie. So if you wanted to be part of that subculture, not only did you pierce lots of stuff and wear a lot of black, you also were a vegan. It's part of coming along with that subculture. And so one of the observations we made was, well, a subculture is bigger than a marginal behaviour very often. So in fact, one of the things you've mentioned a couple of times, I think it's so interesting, and we almost used it in the book, but now I think it's slightly changed, is when we were looking at it, we were, we were looking at super ages, which was almost too much. Whereas I actually think there is a marginal behaviour, which I would now call longevity living. And it's about making life's choices for longevity. And that might be diet, that might be exercise, that might be where you go on holiday because of the sun or something. But it's a holistic lifestyle, which is about long longevity living, which I think is what you were talking about. And I think that probably is a marginal behaviour, which is really interesting. But but as you say, you know, um, vectors are when a, a bigger subculture adopts the behaviour as part of the subculture. And then what happens if, so think about this for a minute. If you're living a, in a family in the 70s and you're still thinking veganism is a bit weird, and you and one of your kids turns into a bit of a light punk, but they come in and they say, oh, but, you know, now I want to eat. I don't want to eat meat anymore because that's part of being a punk. It's now introduced into a sort of mainstream family. And that's why it's a vector. So a subculture can be a vector into the mainstream where it might not have come in, but, it, but it's coming in via being a, a punk. So you have to look. So if you're taking a. Uh, a marginal behaviour, say like polyphasic sleeping, you have to look and go, is there a vector? Is there a subculture vector that this comes in on? Not all of them will have it, but you need to have a look for it. I was thinking about that when I was young and I was coming up through rugby. I, there were, do you remember those? Uh, they're used now for snoring, these things that opened up your nose. And, you know, a couple of the top players in the world started wearing them and, and loads of kids started buying them then. And they were terrible because you, you'd, the, as soon as you start to perspire, they'd fall off. Like, and it'd be like really expensive, like for two minutes. And I was thinking about that, where if you understand the language you talk about, or say, for example, you understand vectors, it gives you a place to almost use the evidence of success and kind of go, look, this new behavior, this marginal behavior is, is working here. Let's try and use that to actually, even in our, our research, maybe to even show to the organization, if I'm trying to get us into a new area, to go, look, this marginal behavior could become mainstream if we start to tap into these different areas, bring them together, and then actually all boats will rise as a result. And I'd love to, to, for you to share that, because what I find so useful about your book and your research and your talks is... If you, if you understand these things that you might just not have the language for, then you can actually reframe things back to the organization. And that's a nice segue to the next, the next beacon, which is reframing. Reframing is a great uh, beacon, I think, because it's where we as innovators, as marketers, as business people have got agency. So if you think about it, intensity, resistance, misalignment, vectors – we don't have agency over this. We just need to know the nature of the resistance, well, why the intensity exists. Is there misalignment? Can I do something about that? Uh, is there a subcultural vector that could be useful to me? This is about looking and understanding. Reframing is something that we can do. 
as business people and marketers. And reframing is a really simple concept. It, it doesn't come from marketing and business, although I think we like to believe it does. The number of times I've seen agencies go, we're going to reframe this. It comes from cognitive behavioral therapy. It comes from a psychiatrist called Aaron T. Beck in the early 60s. And basically what he found was that people with anxiety and depression disorders, just the traditional Freudian techniques weren't very good. And he started to experiment with new techniques. And it's worth understanding this to understand how to reframe, actually. He started to experiment with new therapeutic techniques. And one of his therapeutic techniques was simply to ask people to look at their situation in a more positive light. Just look at your situation that you're that is really causing you anxiety and distress in a more positive light to, if you like, change the frame. And it became incredibly effective. And now it's the accepted practice, you know, cognitive reframing, it, you know, cognitive behavior therapy is, is a very much part of what what people do. And of course, we've grabbed it in business. But very simply, it's to change the frame through which one views a a situation so that you change your conceptual viewpoint. And sometimes consumers even do it themselves. I mean, you know, in our groups, the mainstream consumers, what they observed, they said, you know, the minute, and I don't know whether it was consumers or whether it was a business, the minute the language changed from vegan to plant-based, I saw it completely differently. Because all the associations around veganism are sort of hardcore and, you know, you can't be a dirty vegan and it's a commitment for life and all. You change it to plant-based. It's like, yeah, I'll have the plant-based option for now. Uh, It reframed veganism. So reframing is so powerful. And when we looked at it, we wanted to test out what works. And we looked at it on insect protein. So I think I said... Insect protein got a terribly rough ride in the research. I wasn't expecting it to, actually. I thought people would know it was more sustainable and it's a really great source of low-fat protein. But nevertheless, they do know that. People go, oh, no, it's disgusting. I couldn't possibly, could not possibly. Oh, dirty, horrible. Oh, no. And um, and a lot of the manufacturers of insect protein, they sort of make a joke of the fact that it's insects. So it's called like crunchy critter bar or, you know, bugtopia or something. And all that does is make the problem worse because all you're saying to people is, oh, look, you're eating insects. You know, ha, ha, ha. But people don't want to eat insects. They don't want to know that it's like a locust or a cricket. So we tried another thing. We tried reframing on this one in our research. And the thing about insect protein is that it's part of our ancient past. You know, insects have been a link in the food chain since for billions of years, millions of years. Uh, and, and, you know, they've been that kind of a protein source for mankind and through evolution. And so we put forward a reframing for insect protein where we just put the original protein. And people go, oh, that's interesting. And that was really, it opened people. So you don't start with insects, which we know people are going to go, oh, disgusting, horrible. No, take it away. We started by going, this is an original protein. It's the original protein. Now, obviously, at some point, you're going to have to tell people that it's insects. But you can... You could put insect protein. And in fact, when we put original protein in, we had one person in a group go, do you know what? If that was in a canor stock cube and it was a canor stock cube with original protein made from clean insects, you know, because you're adding a clean word and it was from gnaw, I'd, I'd do that. I'd do that. And so 
reframing can just be so powerful and it's just changing the frame through which you see something and it's so obvious now isn't it when you look at all those brands out there that are trying to give you insect protein um and call and having a joke about crickets and you know whatever but that's not what that will not be motivating to people you could also go back the the taxonomic name for insect ento you could call it ento protein it's just don't say the insect word so fast you know (laughs) Like even I like I said to my son, cricolet, and he's like, "Oh, cricolet," and I was like, kind of going, and, and I started making me think. Then, well, if you think about say protein powder, protein powder, and then protein bars, you could easily use cricket protein in a bar and then call it something else because it's like you know non dairy or plant based or whatever. You know what I mean? You, you you change the frame and then you change how people think about it, and then they're more accepting. One of the things that came to mind for me was you know, algae, you know, spirulina, spirulina, that's 57% protein, like 57 grams of protein per 100 grams, huge amount of protein in that. Yet, people don't understand it, because it's not mainstream yet. And these things, you know, I'm sure 50 years time, Helen will be looking back and going, Oh, my God, I can't believe we were throwing that stuff away. Or, you know, you see it with all the seaweed and stuff like that at the moment. Oh, well, seaweed, living off the sea, we produced a scale of 20 behaviours most likely to turn mainstream. We might need to come back to this one. But top of that list is living from the sea, is kelp. And I won't say now why and what it was, because we probably could come into it. But yeah, definitely want to talk about Okay, we'll plant the seed. We, we have to come, we'll plant the seaweed for that. <laughs> we'll come back for that one. I have to come back for that one. The, the next one is so reminiscent of innovation. And the next beacon is is called reversal. And I'll tee you up here. There's a quote that we all, always use in innovation. And it's from er, Ernest Hemingway's book, The Sun Always Rises. And this character is asked, well, how did you go broke? And he says, well, two ways, gradually, then quickly. <laughs> and this is reversal, which is the next beacon. Yeah, I mean, again, this is an unusual one. So reframing, you've got more opportunities than reversal. You have to see that reversal is going to happen. But... The, the effect when a reversal happened is explosive, as you just pointed out. And it happened in veganism. So if you remember, I was talking about the reason to be a vegan was because of animal welfare. You know, they believed that anim- it was wrong to eat animals. The reason not to be a vegan was because they be- people believed that you needed animals, uh, animal products to, to, um, to stay healthy. Then what, what happened in more recent time is that we got more research to say that actually eating animal protein isn't that good for us. You know, it's fatty. It's giving problems to the heart and the blood. You know, we've got a lot of heart disease. So then what happens is, oh, I don't need you to stay alive. Actually, I should take it out of my life to stay alive and eat more plants. That is reversal. And so when you see the explosive takeoff of veganism from 2017, really, um, you know, and this is just in food and drink. This category, I think, is is uh, estimated to be valued about 68 billion in 2028. And that's just food and drink. That's before you've done, you know, beauty, health, furniture, food. But, you know, it's really taken off. I think reversal and some clever reflaming, some clever dilution. is. The, but reversal was that key point. People thought they had to eat meat to stay healthy. That completely flipped the other way. No, I shouldn't eat meat because it could kill me. So that is what reversal is. Now, you, you're not going to see it very often, but we saw it in uh, veganism. And the other place that we've seen it, which will kind of blow your mind, I think, is exercise for its own sake, going jogging, going to the gym, whatever. 
you know, that really only took off during the 60s. And in fact, just to make the point, someone was arrested for jogging in 1963 in America, arrested for misuse of the public highway. Because if you were running, you were probably running away from something. Nobody did any exercise because basically our work gave us all of our exercise. It was all manual work. And if you weren't working manually, you were washing clothes by hand and mowing the lawn and there were no escalators. So the last thing you needed to do was more exercise when you got home because you'd done it all. You were physically exhausted by that point and you were very healthy. But then, of course, as office work came in, we became more sedentary. Labour-saving devices like escalators, electric windows, washing machines. We became even more sedentary. Heart disease is an issue. So then you have to, that's another reversal. We have to exercise. So reversal, look out for it. So powerful, so powerful. I was thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger there. I don't know if you saw it. There's a brilliant documentary on Netflix about his life. And, you know, when he was... When he started getting into weights at the start, and he had posters of men up on his wall, his, his mother's like, going, "Oh my God, Arnold, what's you know? I want you to settle down with a, an Austrian girl." And he has all these pictures, and I was like, kind of going, "Well, the same thing. It was, it was firstly bodybuilding wasn't a sport, and he he actually was so responsible for going out and being a, what you call an accelerator for bringing that sport. And and this is the next beacon, which is this idea of." the accelerators. And this is where I was talking about, like, you stumble upon some celebrity or some instance, or, for example, in veganism, you talked about this show called Cowspiracy, that was an accelerator. Yeah, so accelerators, where there's something in the outside culture that w is going to give your behaviour or the behaviour you're interested in a, a shove basically, in the right direction. And it might be, celebrity is interesting because very often by the, and I don't think this is the case with Schwarzenegger because I think he built bodybuilding. But I think be very, don't misread influencers or celebrities because by the time something's got to an influencer or a celebrity, it's probably already mainstream, okay? So, but anyway, that's a different conversation. And accelerator is usually something in the outside culture that's going to give something a shove. So where you've got a Schwarzenegger bodybuilding, but you know, COVID gave many uh, behaviours a shove. Uh, polyphasic sleeping, so that's sleeping according to your own body clock, became a real possibility for people during COVID. And now what you're looking at are ways, and we'll come on to the next one, businesses can reframe and dilute. Polyphasic sleeping in its hardcore sense is you sleep in very short periods, you know, but you can dilute that, which I'll come and talk about. But basically, COVID made it possible for people to sleep more according to their body clock because they're working from home or working remotely. And so it gave it a shove. COVID also gave, um, weirdly, well, not weirdly, when you think about it, free birthing, which is given birth with minimal uh, medical intervention in a natural space as possible. You know, what happened, sadly, is that many women saw hospital as a dangerous place to be because of COVID. And so free birthing with the right guidance becomes very appealing. It gave, it, it was an, ex COVID was an accelerator for quite a lot of stuff. But other accelerators, so these accelerators tend to be something happening in your outside world. So it could be a legislation change. So I think we will see legislation change around magic mushrooms and microdosing. And that's an accelerator to look out for. So those are the things to go, what's happened or is happening that could give this behavior a push, basically. When I read that, I was thinking about how it's like 
you 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 push one lever it's like a the waterbed effect you expect maybe you expect something to happen and then it goes it, it triggers a cascade of different things you never expected to happen like you mentioned accelerator being covid i mean covid for many of our audience who were working in digitalization of a business model it was a blessing because it made businesses have to do it some for example retailers didn't have their game together in e-commerce now they had to get that together but also then as you say for example the ecosystem changed so one of the problems we have now is a, a huge oversupply of office buildings where people aren't coming to work anymore and this whole idea of remote working maybe you have some thoughts on that because the understanding the accelerator and i didn't mean to as you call out very clearly in the book it's not about a celebrity endorsement because actually that's confusing the cause and the effect yes exactly the covid accelerator on things has been so interesting actually and there's another business that i know reasonably well called spill who provide online mental health and actually if you, a spill are interesting because uh, mindfulness is another uh, you know, marginal behaviour that quite recently has become more mainstream, you know, because meditation isn't new. People have been meditating since the 60s. But it's only really when John Kabat-Zinn called it mindfulness, not meditation, and it sort of became caught up in sleep and mental health and wellness, you've now got a kind of, oh, and that, a bit like veganism, has given birth to lots of categories, you know, tea and, you know, uh and apps and ways of exercising and uh, furniture and obviously online mental health. Now, what was interesting about Spill, so they were one of these uh, businesses that has come out of, I think, the mainstreaming of meditation and mindfulness. They offer online mental health to businesses and they thought COVID would kill them. But in fact, it accelerated them because what happened is HR are going, oh, my goodness, I can't even see these people anymore. They're all at home. They're probably getting depressed. They're on their own. I must do something. And so they bought Spill. So it's amazing what an accelerator can do for you, I think. And let's come to the last beacon then as well, because this one is much more exciting than it sounds. And you mentioned the word earlier on, which is dilution. But dilution is actually a good thing. Yeah, dilution is a great thing. And don't get this confused with reframing, because reframing is sort of changing the, the, the viewpoint through which people see a behaviour. So it's not crunchy critters, it's an original clean protein. Dilution is helping people find practical ways to do a behaviour a little bit. And we've seen this in veganism, you know, you don't you don't have to go for all out vegan. You can be plant based on a Wednesday, you know, or you can incorporate a bit more soy into your diet if you want to. But it doesn't mean to say you have to go all out. And, and, and being a business or an entrepreneur that does that is a very clever way to really bring a behavior into the mainstream. And I think that's what's happened in in meditation and mindfulness. You know, full on meditation is a big commitment. Whereas if you've got the Calm app and you listen to their sleep story, you don't even listen, you don't even do the 10 minute meditation. That is diluting meditation for the mainstream. You know, and if you're interested in the quantified self, which is the daily measuring of biometrics and psychometrics to understand yourself better and just improve your health. You don't, you know, the Zoe app, where it focuses that on the microbiome and the diet is a diluted form of that. You know, it's not full on every metric blood, you know, 
brain, the whole lot, is just it's it's a diluted form of that. So it's about giving people almost like a bite-sized way to have a go at the behaviour actually. And and on polyphasic sleeping, there's a lovely um, business called Metronaps, and they provide these sort of seats that you put in office or open spaces where a sort of a hood come down. And that is a dilution of polyphasic sleeping. So this is where I talked about reframing is where business people and entrepreneurs have agency. Dilution is where we've also got agency to be imaginative, to be creative, to think about ways that we can give a behaviour that people want to do, they want to do it, but in a small way, in a dilute form. One of the things that came to mind in dilution, and excuse the pun, is actually cold showers or cold ba- bathing, that whole world, because it's actually kind of difficult to do it properly. You you need to have the right equipment. You need to have, you know, back in when I played sport, Helen, we used to have those bins and we'd fill the bin with ice and get into it afterwards and actually the science has come on a hell of a lot since that actually it's useful and for anybody by the way don't make the mistake i was making we used to do it Helen, after we do like a really heavy hypertrophy hypertrophy session which is about muscle growth and actually one of the worst things you could do is have a cold bath because it actually constricts the muscle you're actually better off having a sauna which actually helps growth and you keep the cold for for when you're trying to heal after a match or after a heavy session. And this whole world has come on massively. And I see a massive opportunity in that world. And you do mention it in the book. Yeah. I, and actually, I also think that that world of the, the power of cold water, if you like, is also part of maybe a bigger marginal behavior becoming mainstream, which is longevity living. Uh, because it's so... You know, marginal behaviours like um, exercise for its own sake or even veganism, you know, when they are the platform for lots of categories instead of just small categories, that's where the power is. So that's in a way why even on something like the cold, you're right, the cold water converts on its own is a marginal behaviour. But then if you put it if you put it under something like longevity living and make it part of longevity living and then dilute it so that people can do it, maybe even reframe it. You've got something really powerful going on, I think. Yeah, and it, that whole thing reminded me of something like electrification or the internet. It's like this bigger and this bigger movement that's happening, and then you decide where you can tap in and make uh, an advantage from a marginal behavior, as you said, that feeds into that bigger, bigger mainstream movement. So that's the eight. That's the eight beacons that's so, so useful that you talk about. So this is, we're only, by the way, on chapter one, and we haven't even got into it in depth. But I thought maybe before we finish up today, we talk about the challenges in marketing. So this next section is is particularly useful for you. If you're a marketer or an entrepreneur, this doesn't, this isn't for only for marketers or CMOs. It's actually for entrepreneurs as well to understand opportunities be able to, if you're a startup, if you're seeing an opportunity here, this next section is really important. But you talk about one of the challenges in marketing. So why marketing is a low growth zone? I think marketing is a low growth zone. I think um, a lot of business is a low growth zone. And, and I think there are there are a few reasons why that's going on. I mean, I think one of, I think there are blockers to growth, actually. So I think convergence is a reason uh, why it's a low growth zone. And we almost started the conversation at Convergence, which is I think what happens is when you're in marketing, when you work in marketing and you work in categories, you're 
first port of call for growth is around what's everyone else doing? Have I got, you know, now it would be, have I got my vegan option if you're in food? You know, is to look for what is everyone else doing? And so what happens is categories tend to cluster around what, what in my world we call points of parity. It's like tick off your points of parity. Have I got my vegan option? Have I got my low fat option? If you work in skincare, have I got my naturals? Have I got my anti-aging? You know, have I got my youth brand? So they tend to converge around points of parity. And that means, therefore, you're just fighting for share, really. You're not getting maximum growth. But combined with that are some other things that are happening. And some of them are outside our control. Regs and legislation, it varies by category can mean that everything converges a bit because regulatory environments can be so uh, stringent in healthcare, for example, that there's not much you can do other than sort of brand it differently. But I think the other one, which I think is pernicious and people don't see it, is supply chain concentration. So to get products and services at a price at which we can make a decent margin, nowadays we all tend to use the same supply chain. But what that means is we've basically all got the same product. And, you know, what always blows my mind is the fragrance industry. You know, in the fragrance industry, there are basically three big fragrance houses. That's it. They pretty much supply the entire industry. And the entire industry works off the way they view fragrance. And so basically you end up with the same thing because you're all using the same suppliers. So I think these are things that sort of happen, but we don't think about enough. But we we in marketing can't do much about that. I think we need to be aware of it, regs and legislation, supply chain concentration, but we can't do much about it. But I think there are also a couple of things that we can do something about. And one is um, too much lateral innovation. We'll come back to that. But the other is, and I won't make any friends here with researchers, is listening too much to research and researchers. You know, I think... What's happened is we have gone to be a really great marketer. I've got to listen to the consumer, you know, that we took that Theodore Levitt paper of customer centricity and went, this is all about really listening to the consumer and doing what they want, you know, knowing what they want and doing what they want. What that means in practice is we commission research quantitatively or qualitatively. We literally ask consumers what they think, what they like, and then we literally do as we're told. But the thing is, consumers don't know what they don't know. And they lie in research. They tell you what you want to hear. And actually, it's not about... And consumers are saying exactly the same thing to all your competitors too. So they're saying exactly the same thing to all of your competitors too. So I think research, traditional research, is really at fault here. But really probably what's at fault are marketers who are not using research properly. It's about... Using research to understand how people want to live, we don't do enough ethnography, for example, and observing how people want to live, not asking them what they want, because they don't know what they want and they don't know what's possible. And they might say they want that, but they probably don't really. And that's that's fine because they're human beings, you know. But research is bad. Research is a terrible thing, and we see it a lot. Sorry, I've had a right rant about that. But it's the <laughs> wrong interpretation of customer centricity, basically. You've teed us up beautifully for lateral innovation or incremental innovation because the quote, the famous quote by Henry Ford, "If asked people what they want, they would have said a faster horse," makes absolute sense because 
if you think about the paradigm, which is just a Greek word that means pattern of thinking, the model of thinking was a horse and carriage is the way you transport, the other way was train, a faster horse was a better horse, so maybe had less excrement, ate less food, had more <laughs> miles per gallon and didn't die as often. So it, it was incrementally a better thing. And in comes Henry Ford and goes, well, I'm going to mass market the automobile. Now, that's just, I'm just placing that there and go, but let's look at a modern version that you talk about in the book, which was Steve Jobs. And Steve Jobs' ability to go, what is a marginal behavior that is interlinking with some massive movement like the PC or the PC and the mobile phone coming together in this kind of convergence? And how can I get in there? And then one thing that I found really interesting you talked about was he didn't listen to a wider audience because that wider audience didn't know what it wanted because they would have just went smaller and smaller phone perhaps he's going actually they want something different and one of the things he was listening to was his own people and i thought that was very interesting yeah i thought that was really interesting i mean obviously there are lots of stories about steve jobs and what he was brilliant at. And he was brilliant at a lot of stuff but i thought this was really interesting because he was famous for not doing very much consumer research because of the thing consumers don't know what they want and he's right but what but he kind of did do research because but in a sense he did research among early adopters because his own people are tech geeks you know in a sense his own people were early adopters so to listen to them gives you a foresight into what might be coming so i then that's what he did is that he listened to his own people what did they want what was interesting to them and that helped with product development another more more much bigger more mainstream company that i think in the early days did this really well was Emirates Airline actually. So Tim, Sir Tim now, Davis, who who was who ran it, he also said, I'm not gonna ask consumers what they want from an airline. He said, I know what they want. And this was a quote he used to say, I know what they want. They want a four-poster bed and lobster for the price of coach. That's what they want. I know what they want, which is basically I want loads of service and I don't want to pay very much. So I'm not going to ask them anymore. But what he did do was he incentivized his cabin crew to observe people on flights, especially in coach. And one of the observations that cabin crew came back with was that if you're in coach, like crammed in a seat, they would put their feet on their bags like lift their feet up because having your feet slightly elevated is nice. So that's why Emirates were the very first airline to put the flip down footbar in coach. Um, and Emirates became known as the best airline to fly in, in economy or coach, whatever you want to call it, because of those little observations. But that observation didn't come from them going, would you like a flip down bar in coach? Because consumers would probably go, I don't, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, probably not, no, because I will have less room. You know, they'd make all those assumptions. But it was the observation of the cabin crew where they could see what people were doing uh, and said, well, we can give that to them. It's brilliant, really. Let's finish up maybe with the the next thing, which was okay. So you were saying about this this big challenge in business, and actually in the business world in general, is because of a collide. You know, this collision of several different forces. One of them is this over focus on lateral innovation, incremental innovation, sustaining innovation, and the other is what you call an invention famine. Now, the invention famine part you talk about was really interesting because you look at it from a higher order change. So the trickle down effect of these bigger inventions, and then the sub inventions that come with that, that that was fascinating. 
Yeah, this is a bit more of a contentious point and not everyone will agree with it. But there are a couple of key thinkers. And I talk about a book called The Great Stagnation by Professor Tyler Cowen. And I talk about a much more, you know, weighty tome by Professor Robert Gordon um, called The Rise and Fall of American Growth. And basically these two books, what they basically argue is that these massive uh, technological innovations uh really don't happen that often. So, you know, the steam engine and now more recently, the kind of technology and the microtech, the, the internet, they don't happen very often. And what happens is the low hanging fruit of innovation gets taken very quickly. And what they say is we ain't going to see, like we saw technology, the internet, the microchip, whatever you want to call it. We saw that, but there ain't another one coming anytime soon. And that's why they predict the great stagnation. Now, the reason it's slightly controversial, and they're sometimes called the growth pessimist school. The, the reason it's controversial is there are some people who kind of don't agree. But when you look at the reason they don't agree, so if you take people like Bill Gates, he doesn't agree with that. He thinks there's lots of room for innovation. But where he thinks that innovation is going to come from is by imaginatively breaking coming up with more breakthroughs in technological, in the technology we've already got. Do you see what I mean? So what he talks about is limitless human ingenuity to find new ways to deploy the, 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 the original big innovations. So even if we look at something like ChatGPT, you know, that's not a new technological innovation, but it's quite an original human inventive way to use something that we already had. And so, but it's not really countering that view of these massive, great, big technological innovations that, that feed innovation for decades. Well, the last one probably was all about computer technology. There ain't another one coming anytime soon. <laughs> and that's why I then argue, so you're going to have to look somewhere else. And probably the place you should look is people human beings and how they're behaving as opposed to what can we invent. Then it's kind of what can we invent to serve them better? So that I guess that brings us full circle. Beautiful, beautiful. And the, the line I had was, I love this, what you said, if you're going to be ahead of your competition, you have to be ahead of your consumer. And that means looking into the margins. That's where the gold is. I absolutely love it. And a beautiful way to, to finish today's episode. Helen, for people who want to find out you who may not be able to join us for part two, where's the best place to find you to reach out? Because you have your own business, you bring all this to life, you're a professor, where you join us today from the London Business School. Where is the best place to find you? You can find me in a couple of, so probably the best place, place directly is LinkedIn, of course, uh, pretty active on LinkedIn. I also write for Marketing Week. So some people may know that publication. So you can find me there. And I'm doing some work uh, with them on what they call their mini MBA. So that's quite interesting. And obviously here at London Business School, which is where I am today, you can always find me here as well. So lots of lots of places to find. But LinkedIn directly is probably the best place to go. Don't forget, I have few copies up for grabs. Just sign up to our sub stack and I'll put you in the hat to win a copy of this brilliant book from marginal to mainstream. I want to thank the author of that book for joining us today for part one and will join us very soon for part two. Helen Edwards, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. Nice one, Helen.